Folks, welcome back to the podcast. I am so excited about today's interview. It is with the one and, as far as I am concerned, the only Eric Ludi. Eric Ludi has been married to his wife, Leslie, for 27 years. They've got six children. He is an author and a speaker. He's the president of Ellerslie Mission Society in Colorado. He's uh, also the senior pastor at the church of the uh, of at Ellerslie, and he's the lead instructor. Lead instructor. Okay, I got this, guys. Bear with, please do not give up on me. Believe in me more than I believe in me, and I think we can make make it through this. He is the lead instructor at Ellerslie Leadership Training in Windsor, Colorado. Okay, that is like a brief introduction as to Eric Ludi, but as you'll discover in this episode, he is so much more, and there's like no way to put all that he's done and all that he's accomplished and just the great work that he and his wife have done into a podcast introduction. So I'll just let the episode speak for itself. Be sure to go to ellersley.com, go to ericludy.com, or you can look up Eric on various social media platforms. He and his wife have published 28 books. They put out a daily podcast called The Daily Thunder. I should say he does. He's got a podcast called The Daily Thunder. You can find that in all the podcast platforms. And then again, at ellersley.com, you can find just an abundance of amazing content that he has put out um, that is just really encouraging. And it's a huge blessing and it's really high quality. So be sure to check all of that out. If you folks enjoy this podcast, please leave a rating or a review on iTunes. And if you're watching it on YouTube, maybe you could hit the like button. You could subscribe. Maybe you could even leave a comment in the comment section, any of those things. Anyways, we appreciate you so much. And I hope you enjoy today's interview with Eric Ludi. All right, Eric Ludi. Wow, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and to share some of your insights and to share some of your story. I know I really appreciate, I think, everything I've ever seen you put out, which is a lot. You've put out a lot of content, and I've always appreciated it. I know much of our audience already greatly enjoys a lot of what you put out. So really, thank you so much for, for taking the time to be here. I already shared on the introduction a little bit about you, but could you maybe in your own words Tell us, you know, when somebody asks you what you do, when you get in the elevator, what 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 do you tell them these days? Yeah, I, I always say it depends on which hat I'm wearing. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's there's certain things that I really want to talk about. And there's other ones that, you know, sort of fill the bill of what they're thinking uh, the answer should be. Uh, and you know, so I, I run an, uh, an organization, a discipleship organization called Ellerslie Mission Society. Uh, Ellerslie Discipleship Training is what our focus is there. And that's, that takes a lot of my time. And that's usually probably what someone would want to hear. Uh, and, you know, what I want to talk about is uh, my wife, I want to talk about my kids, and I want to talk about that side of things. And usually in interviews, that's not where it goes. That's what it's funny. Uh, most people aren't like, tell me about your 17 year old, you know, <laughs> right. what they talk about. but that is what I do uh, too. It's a big part of my life. Uh, Leslie and I have, I think it's 28 books. Um, and so that was a, that's been a big chunk of our life too, is, uh, the communication side is, a, is a big dimension of what I do. And so even though I do have the face-to-face, -face, uh, in-person discipleship side of what we do, I also have the pastoral and then also the communicative sides that are big uh, to me. You know, we have a, 
uh, a podcast that uh, has been going for three years, about five days a week. We have our, it's called Daily Thunder. We do have our uh, periodic thunderstorms uh, seasons like we're in right now where we do one a week, but then we're, you know, we have a lot of the year where we're doing about five a week. And so it's a wow. lot of content in addition to a sermon on Sunday. So I create a lot of content. I, right before this, I was I was putting together three messages uh, for this week to film. So uh, I like it though. It's it's a it's a tremendous joy uh, what I do. Yeah, I think to say you you create a lot of content is an understatement. I mean, just in preparing for talking to you today, I was trying to figure out what direction we could go down. And it's like, choose one of the, you know, 4,000 things that you could speak to and add a ton of value to. And, uh, and you're, you're making me feel bad if I don't ask about your wife and kids now from this point forward, because that's all, you know, since that's all you want to talk about. And we'll definitely get to that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I do want to hear more about Ellerslie and of course, some of the books you've written and some of your most recent projects. Um, but would you be actually able to tell us kind of about your background, your, maybe your childhood, what your home was like growing up? You know, a lot of people that listen, I know my wife and I are in the stage of, of raising children. And it's so interesting hearing about different family cultures and different experiences that people have. So I don't know if you could give us a, a brief backstory to what your childhood was like going into young adulthood. Absolutely. I, I had one of those homes that was Italian or Jewish without being Italian or Jewish. We had a, it was a lot of noise and a lot of hugs and uh, a lot of attitude and a lot of laughter. Uh, so it was, uh, I really have a fondness towards my uh, my growing up years, and not everyone does, and so I really cherish that. Uh, I remember I was on the on my our back patio. We had a whole father son gathering. Uh, this is a, a few years ago, and uh, we had fathers and sort of their teenage sons. And I just said, "Hey guys, uh, out of all the fathers here, how many of you were ever sat down by your father and imparted a vision?" for manhood, your sexuality. And two of us out of 20 strong men uh, that were are all strong Christians, two of us could raise our hand. Wow. And uh, my dad just passed away the day after Christmas uh, mm. this past year. And so I've been thinking about it a lot, maybe a lot more than is maybe normal uh, to be pondering what I was given as a man and the heritage that I have been entrusted and imparted because I think I received something uh, more than most people do. And I saw a man of God growing up uh, in, I've oftentimes said my dad was uh, perfect and that of course makes everyone uncomfortable. But what I mean by that isn't that he was perfect. Oh, he made plenty of mistakes and he'd be the first one to tell you. And I would be the second one to tell you, <laughs> but uh he perfectly responded to his imperfections, which means he humbled himself. He just made it right. And I really appreciate that heritage too, that mm. the Christian man is after a different sort of perfection. We clothe ourselves in the perfection of Christ, but then when we recognize when the Holy Spirit is touching our heart and convicting us, we just agree and we walk that out. And so I grew up in a home with that. And wow. I think that's a treasure uh, you know, I, they didn't have homeschooling, uh, back in my day, or they, maybe they did. It was the illegal version and my parents didn't yeah. know about it. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. Uh, 
and I didn't really like school because of it. I mean, the public school system was pretty bad, uh, just to be frank about it. Uh, but, uh, you know, in light of even the amount of junk I was exposed to growing up, I do cherish, I do look at the reason I'm a strong man now as not being just the fact that I survived that, but I was given something unique in and through it that gave me equipment to think and reason and separate out and discern. And so uh, I don't know if that gives you, I mean, it doesn't tell you a lot of details more at the granular level, but that's more of the 50,000 foot level uh, viewpoint of uh, young Eric. Yeah, I love that. So you were in a Christian home, it sounds like, and it sounds like your parent were your parents, you know, married throughout. They stayed married. Your 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 for their you know the duration of your childhood and in their lives. Yeah. I mean, I was just just yeah. getting a Marco yeah. Polo from my mom right before I got on the phone here, and she was talking about, uh, you know, how much she misses uh, uh, my dad, and you know, so this is it's very fresh uh, for us mm. as we're going through this. But yeah, they went the distance, uh, fifty plus years uh, of marriage, and so I, I've witnessed it. All my grand, all my grandparents, you know, the same thing. You know, where it was, I think at our wedding, it was hundreds of years. Uh, maybe over 200, I don't remember what it was, of marriage wow. that was on the stage blessing us uh, from our heritage, both from Leslie's side and my side. Wow, so, that is powerful. Yeah, so we've been given a lot, but to whom much is given, much is uh, required. And so we we don't want to bury our talent or our mina of silver. We want to invest it. And I think that's a good summary of what motivates us is we we feel like we've been blessed. We want to be a blessing. Wow, that's so cool to hear. And I even love the attribute that you kind of highlighted from your father, and that being one of humility, because regardless of how uh, many strengths we can have as men or as fathers, the, I feel like the greatest quality we can have is humility. Um, it's to think of the one thing that God tells us he opposes is pride, and the one thing he gives just abundant grace to is humility, and to think of that position of leadership in a home where you know you're going to fail, you just have to preemptively know you're going to, you hopefully have it hard, hardwired into you. It's just like, man, I'm going to have to have humility here to be able to walk out this path and this journey. That's so good to hear. Now, can you share about kind of what the path was that led to you becoming, um, you know, you, you said you, you've authored 28 books. I mean, that's crazy. And I was reading and you started pretty young, I believe. I think one of your first books, were you 24 years old? Is that, is that the age that you were? And so what, what was that like young adult college age into starting this you know, ministry stuff? What did, what did that look like? Yeah, well, just to give some perspective, I'm 51 now. And so just in case everyone's trying to figure out how old this guy is. That's right. 51 exactly. now, and I think it was 24 when we published our first book. Uh, it, I, I've been asked a lot of times by people, it's like, how do I get into writing and speaking? And I, all I could probably say is, well, I know why you're asking me that. You're trying to figure out what my secret sauce was. But actually, I didn't have a secret sauce unless you call it Jesus Christ, because mm -hmm. all we did was uh, stand up for something we believed, and it opened unique doors. Uh, and so our love story that we enjoyed, uh, which we're biased, we think it's the greatest love story of all time, uh, was a key that unlocked a door in our culture. It was very interesting because to us, it was just our love story. I didn't come up to other people and ask them about their love story. It wasn't the type of thing I ever did growing up. So I thought it was a little strange when we got married 
And it really was an extraordinary wedding. It was an extraordinary process of falling in love. And now suddenly everyone wanted us to talk about it. Hmm. And I hmm. thought this was a private thing. I, I was actually a little taken uh, off uh, guard by this and I didn't know what to do with it. And I was actually a little miffed over it. It's like, hey, you know, I don't ask you about your love story. You leave me and my love story alone. <laughs> so I, I don't want to say I had a bad attitude, but it was more just a little off. Like I, I wasn't quite embracing it. Yeah, and it doesn't sound like a good attitude. <laughs> so we were being asked on radio and to speak to schools, different events. And I was thinking, you've got to be kidding. It's just, a, it's just our love story. Now I think it's great. And so maybe, maybe that's why they all want to hear it. It's just a cool love story, but it just seemed odd. I didn't grow up hearing people's love stories. And so I didn't know what to do with this. So instead of answering all the questions, Leslie and I decided we were going to spend three weeks and just write it down. And then the next person that dared to ask us the question, I was going to stick the book in their face, you know, that we staple bound and we print it off uh, and say, hey, you know what, we don't talk about this, but you can uh, read this. And well, that didn't help because then that ends up, someone gives that to a publisher, the publisher reads it, calls us up and says, this is extraordinary. Would you mind if I spread this uh, message around the world and publish this? And so uh, the beginning of uh, Eric and Leslie's unique season of traveling the world and speaking on the topic of romance and relationships began. Uh, no so, yeah, and that's what started. Leslie and I are both writers, we're both communicators. So that's not, it wasn't necessarily a shocker side of it. We just didn't intend to do this. And so I think we still hold the world record for the most books written by a couple in their 20s. So uh, awesome! You know, it's not not a, a record that most people aim to beat. <laughs> well, that's great. So then, what what were you doing prior to getting married? Were you in formal ministry? Were you a student? What was your life like prior to that whirlwind beginning? I was I was doing two different things. I was in school and I was studying to be a doctor. Uh, that was what I, that was my placeholder. You know, you don't just go to undergraduate and study to be a doctor, but you have to get your undergraduate. I was biology, chemistry. Uh, double major is what I was working on. And then I went on to the mission field. And so I was in ministry, but not in something that I was leading. It was just servanthood. It was just going out and sharing the gospel with people around the world. And uh, so that laid a unique foundation. Uh, but I, we didn't have this in our grid. I could say it that way. You know, if Lesla and I, if you took us at, when we were first married and said, what would you anticipate for the next 20 years of your life? I think we both would have said, well, we'll probably live in America. And I think Eric will be a doctor. I may be a nurse, if this was Leslie talking. And we'll probably uh, go on missions, maybe for either half the year, or maybe a quarter of the year. In other words, that was still our, our orientation was to share Jesus with the world. But we just thought it was going, doesn't it just seem more effective to be a doctor that's a missionary doctor? I mean, that to me had so much more muscle and meat to it than uh -huh. being a writer and a speaker and traveling around and speaking on romance. And so <laughs> my my grid had to adjust. I'll just say it that way. Wow. Okay. That's, that's really interesting to hear. So do you think just growing up in a Christian home with a Christian father had planted on your heart the significance of well, the gospel message. And it, and so you had kind of, it sounds like an appetite and a fervor to share the gospel prior to this, this ro sharing of romance tour, you know, where you guys went and talked about that. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, it wasn't, you know, I, I would say I wasted a good portion of the investment of my parents growing up 
sort of like the uh, prodigal. I felt like I, I blew a lot of it and had to spend some time with the pigs uh, and then had to come back and recognize I had it good. Hmm. And that unfortunately has to happen to some of us uh, to just sort of awaken us from our, our worldly stupor where we get entranced by the world's goods and, and you know have to go out and just sort of test it to see what it's made of. And uh, my sister sort of went through it differently. And she was a magnificent example, still is, of a set-apart life, just one given to Jesus from a young age. Hmm. She prayed for me every day. And uh, she prayed that I would discover Jesus truly, you know, not just have the, you know, the correct theology, but to be transformed. And so when I was uh, in my freshman year of college at Whitworth, it's now called Whitworth, Whitworth University. Uh, that's when she gave me a book for Christmas, and it was the life story of Keith Green. If you guys remember Keith Green, but it's, uh, so it's called No Compromise, written by his widowed wife Melody, and that book changed my life. And I called up my sister, and uh, she wasn't used to hearing from me, and I said, Chrissy. Uh, I gave my life to Jesus and all she did was cry. She didn't say one word in the mm -hmm. whole thing, the whole conversation. She just cried. And uh, that was a pretty good summation of my sister's investment in my life and the significance, not just of my parents, but then of my sister. And, uh, you know, cause I would be one of those classic pictures of a kid that had all the truth, but didn't have Christ uh, mm -hmm. in any personal sense. Uh, and in fact, I was more embarrassed by him than holding tightly to him. So even though you're hearing sort of the end, the bookends, I had a great family and I gave my life radically to follow Jesus with my life uh, since, since a pretty young age, since college. Uh, I had some rough patches in there where I lost uh, my compass and uh, praise God for his grace and uh, for how he brought me back and has proved to me uh, over and over again, the value of a Christian heritage, the value of a parental investment. Wow. That's, yeah, that's powerful to hear. I, cause I think, I mean, that's news to me, you know, just with the, the, what I've known of your ministry. Um, I couldn't help, but assume it was just this kind of, you know, smooth, seamless uh, journey from childhood into having an effective ministry. Of course, knowing that there's been challenges and trials like every Christian human experiences, um, and that you're an imperfect person as we all are. Uh, but a lot of times I think it's so easy to think that, um, well, this, this is the danger of anything. It's the danger of thinking that we on our own are anything apart from Christ. And whether you experience that in a real practical way that we might call, you know, sowing your wild oats or being the prodigal son, I think everybody has to come to that to terms with the reality that apart from Christ, they are nothing and that their childhood cannot give them any righteousness before Christ. You know, their current stature in them of themselves can't give them any righteousness before Christ. And everybody's journey seems, God takes us on a different journey, and sometimes it looks different practically. And there are pros and cons to the practical ramifications too. You know, there are pros to a godly heritage, and there are, you know, some practical cons to, to you know, ungodliness at any point, any point in our life. Yeah, so... When did Elder? Actually, I was going to ask you one more thing because you mentioned Whitworth. Is that was that where you were from? Because we're actually living in Coeur d'Alene, just down you know down the road from Whitworth. Yeah, we are. And so, is did you grow up in in that Spokane area? Family members on my uh, mom's side and dad's uh, graduated from Whitworth, so oh. I 
uh, when I was graduating from high school, uh, Whitworth came and visited my my school, and I was a soccer player. And they said, "Hey, you can come to Whitworth and play soccer." And for whatever reason, I think because of the family connectivity there, I was I was wooed in that direction to Spokane to play soccer. And so that is why I ended up going up there was to actually play soccer. But I do have quite a connectivity to that over the over the years, but not not because we lived there. Okay, interesting. But you were, wow, you're a college soccer player. That's pretty awesome. Did you play all four years? No, I played my first year and uh, recognized I couldn't do a double major and play soccer at the same time. Mm. At least I could. I'm sure someone could. I was, it was <laughs> killing me. So I ended up just doing uh, the first year. But so, which was I, still in hindsight, you know, those are hard things to look back on because uh, athletics was a big part of my life. And that was part of what God was doing. Because you remember I said earlier that Jesus got a hold of my life in my first year, too. Mm. And one of the things I felt like he was asking me to set down was athletics mm. uh, because it was a distraction to my soul. It was part of my identity. And he wanted my identity to be firmly in placed in him. And so that was a big, significant process for me. Yeah. So has that shaped at all how you've, uh, you know, made sports a part of your family's culture with your children? Do, do they play sports? Have you played soccer with them? Are they in leagues and stuff like that? Yeah, it's a great question. It's, it's funny because I had such uh, a love for sports, but I also had a idolatrous relationship with it. it make, it's made it hard, just to be honest with you. I, I think my kids will probably have the balanced generation where, you know, they can see the more of the benefits in sports and my kids have been in sports. Uh, you know, Hudson hasn't ever been interested in sports. He's my oldest, which sort of threw me off uh, in the beginning. And uh, then I have two adopted. And the, the the approach is very different when it's not a biological thing. Now it's they just have different interests than I had. So uh, but then you get down to my uh, fourth child who's biological. We have four adopted uh, just as because I, I could be confusing everyone. I have six kids. I should say that too. <laughs> six kids and I have four adopted. And but my fourth one is a gymnast. Uh, she is 12. And uh, it's actually a different sort of problem. It's like, hmm. great. Uh, out of all the sports for you to pick gymnastics, how did you how did how, why do you want to do that? But she is she loves it. Number one. And she's extremely good at it, number mm. two. So she's, for those that know gymnastics, she's like a level seven in the junior Olympics. And wow. she's just, uh, she's really good. She's won the state title last two years. And now she's doing really good this year. So I'm struggling from a different angle with that, where I love sports, but I've never not put any pressure on it. Leslie could care less about sports. Mm -hmm. And so I've never once tried to, you know, say, hey, this is important. You need to do this. And I just sort of want it to come uh, to her, and it has, which now is a different sort of problem, because for those of you that know gymnastics, it's sort of a tricky one as a parent to know how you want your daughter to grow up in that. Uh, that's not necessarily the environment. If I could pick environments, you know, it's like gymnastics, Hollywood, neither of them would I be interested <laughs> in progressing my children towards. So, uh, so those are just unique challenges, but uh, I have a son that was really good in karate and he's stepped out of that now. So no one in soccer, uh, they've all played it. No one in basketball, all the sports I like football, they never uh, had a fancy for. So I haven't really been able to invest all my knowledge uh, yeah. that I have of sports <laughs> into my kids. They, they seem to gravitate towards. Well, that makes it that much easier to sell all of your legendary stories to them. You know, like if they don't know any better, they'll just take your word for it. Uh, that's pretty interesting. 
Yeah, that's an interesting. Kate, my wife and I talk a lot about uh, sports and art, what we're going to do for children, because I grew up um, one of 10 children and we all played organized sports and we were homeschooled, but we played organized sports in the in the public school system, basketball and track. And a couple of us played soccer, not me um, and golf. And then my wife, on the other hand, did not really play organized sports with the school, but they did her dad was intentional about doing sports that they could all do do together, you know, so a lot more of the mountain biking, skiing, and so on. And so I, I'm always curious to hear other people's takes on it that obviously put a high value on family, on discipleship within their home, and, and have a strong family culture and how that looks for their home, because it, clearly it's going to look different for everyone, depending on how the spouses view it. So yeah, thanks for sharing that. I appreciate that. And it's, it's a really challenging issue, because individualized sports really can create not division, but separation of family mm. where you can't cultivate it can really mess up family time, uh, which we've seen in gymnastics, which is one of the, I have a love hate relationship with gymnastics because of it. It's uh, it's a big commitment, uh, but you know, Abby has a tremendous impact on these girls and she yeah. has a tremendous impact on other girls outside because of it. Uh, those are tensions. And but yeah, we do a lot of the mountain biking, a lot of hiking. Uh, so those are things that we gravitate towards as a family too. So yeah, I, I totally understand why families sort of struggle with this to figure out where they need to land. Yeah. Are, are there practical things that you guys do to try to counter that individualized you know, nature of gymnastics where you guys find your areas to participate as a family, you know, to show up at, at um, or their meets, I guess is probably what you call them, um, or to travel, you know, to travel with her and stuff. Are, are you guys doing stuff like that or is it kind of different every, every week? week? Yeah, it's, I think we're still sort of learning the process. Uh, and, uh, you know, we do, because there's a lot, it's not just sports, it's even Eric being invited to go speak somewhere, or Leslie being invited to go speak somewhere. We're, we say no to most invites now, uh, for the exact reason you're bringing up, either we go as a family, which is as a speaker, it's not very pleasant. Uh, when you go as a family, it's a lot more challenging and it's a lot easier when you're just by yourself and you can prepare things and get, but when your, your kids are there, they sort of need daddy time. And sure. yet it's hard to give daddy time when you're about to speak. So it's unique, especially with someone like me, who's been speaking for decades. And then suddenly you have this new wrinkle of kids in the middle of your speaking. So I just don't say yes to most uh, speaking events. I, you know, this, this uh, winter spring, I had two events total and I said no to everything else. And, you know, I even have it going through my mind. Maybe I should say no to everything moving forward because my priority is my family and a family just demands constancy. It demands presence. Mm. And so like with, with Abby's uh, that's my 12 year old with her, uh, gymnastics, you know, we always uh, have our family time right when she comes home. And then we always have a special thing that we're doing each night. And we have a special time every morning. And a lot of times we're together for lunch during the week. So we're, we're creating those, uh, those bumpers and those situations where we're all together. And so if something is going to violate that, it's just a no uh, from the beginning. So we're still figuring it out. And I think it is one of those things where every day brings a, a new challenge and you have to sort of dexterously manage. We don't like pat answers like we will never do this because then there's bound to be an exception to it. But uh, at the same time, we do have a lot of principles that we that govern our, our reasoning and our. Hmm. Wow, that's encouraging. I like that you uh, use the word, I think, constancy in regards to parenting, because I 
my wife and I run some businesses. I, I run a business by myself and the nature of a lot of our businesses, I feel like come in these like big, they're seasons of push. We're like, okay, we got a big season here and we're going to launch a product or it's a maintenance mode or it's a, you know, a developing a new product, you know, probably similar to you developing new content, new products and whatnot. And a lot of times it's easy for me to take that same mindset into my children where I'll think, oh man, I'll sprint for this season. And then I'm able to kind of go into maintenance mode. And of course, they're going to come probably seasons in children's life where it is maybe a crisis or it's they need an extra amount of intentionality. But I think that word constancy is crucial because I have to have a different mindset with the, the nature of parenting and a fatherhood. And it's this this constant patient, um, but also like a urgent you know, pursuit of your children because the season is small that we have them. And it, I, I do think that constancy is something that I've seen as being a consistent thread in some of the parents that I, that I look up to and that have had success in their children. Um, so yeah, I, I really appreciate that. Now, go ahead. Here's the same words, constancy and rhythm. Mm. I, how, you know, whatever, if that's from my sports background, I'm not exactly sure if that's from a music background, I'm not sure, but it's uh, without that, I feel like, and it may, I can't tell if it's a personal thing for me. Like I, my, one of my sons was sharing a story about an autistic child and the parent said uh, that the child has to have a predictable routine every day and they thrive. If, if they have a lot of uh, variation, they immediately start to bottle up. And I was like, maybe I'm autistic <laughs> <laughs> because that is actually what I crave too. And because that's the best way for me to invest in my children. I have certain spots throughout the week where I'm always investing in my kids. And I have this time with this child, this time with this child, this time with this child. And I can, it, all it takes is one bomb blast in the week. And I lose that time with that child because that was my time with them. And so I have to be extremely protective of that rhythm throughout the week and allow for, I have to receive bombs and find the spot in my day to deal with the bombs, you know, like diffuse it over here and then make sure I'm protecting that, which is core. And hmm. Hmm. well, that's, I think so crucial. And do you feel like that's been clear to you since the beginning of marriage and children, everybody's got their filter of their priorities and you've already, you know, alluded to the countless opportunities that you and Leslie have, which I'm sure 99% of them are good opportunities, you know, maybe things that you would sure you'd, you'd love to be a part of. And yet you find yourself saying no more and more. And so was there, was that kind of like a, a natural progression for you and your wife as your speaking opportunities were rising and becoming more and so, but then your children were also growing up and how did you, how did you navigate that? Well, uh, it, it was definitely not something that was baked into Eric Ludi at the beginning. I, I was, we were saying yes to everything when we first started because that was spiritual. That's what you did. You right. were yes, Lord, uh, yes, and of course, yes is very spiritual. No is very unspiritual. And I would say probably one of my number one life lessons. It does make it into my top twenty life lessons because I do have that mapped out. Awesome. Uh, is the principle of no, and that no is actually how you preserve your yeses. You need to know what your yeses are supposed to be invested in. And then you say no to that which threatens your yeses. In other words, you have limited time on this earth. So you need to know where your yeses are supposed to be spent. They're like your minas, your, your talents. You need to spend them wisely. And there's just a lot of things that sound good. 
that are not where your yes is supposed to be invested. And of course, children amplify that and actually draw that very clearly to the surface because you can lose your children very easily by saying yes to the wrong things. Mm -hmm. And, but to say yes to your children, even at the expense of resource and finances and a more comfortable life or more fame and, and power is a very Christian thing to do. <laughs> so it's it's a very, very significant thing. I We say no to financial opportunities all the time, and we're so used to it that it doesn't even create a stir in us anymore. But back in the beginning, that was huge. I mean, we could, I mean, It's like, how could we pass up that money? And so, but as a result, it compromised our life. And so we, we've recognized it for quite a long time now, but that's become one of the biggest deals. When we started Ellerslie, the principle of no was right at the center. It's like, okay, this is a priority for us. That's the reason we're, we're saying yes to Ellerslie. So when we say yes to Ellerslie, that means we're saying no to a lot of other opportunities in this life. And so we need to remember that. And we need to remember that uh, even when we're doing Ellerslie, we're saying yes to Ellerslie. It does not mean I'm saying no to God, I'm not saying no to my wife. I'm not saying no to my kids. I, my, they have a greater yes position hmm. than even Ellerslie. And so uh, if all my students know, if Leslie needs to get in touch with me when I'm speaking, I'll say yes, and I'll drop everything. And that's how I disciple them. Hmm. If I didn't say yes to Leslie in that situation, I'm doing a poor job of discipling them in priority. And my kids, if they ever have a need, I'll drop everything at Ellerslie and leave it all. Even in the middle of a meeting, even in the middle of a teaching, it doesn't matter, even in the middle of a conference call, I'm gone. And that's how I train my generation in priority, because we have to regain the priority of God, then, then marriage, then family. Then as an outflow of that, we impact the world with the gospel. And But if those three are strong, we're going to be strong to give the gospel. Amen. Wow. You know, you said that or saying yes to your children is a very Christian thing to do. And, and I agree, but I would also say that it's not very common. And a lot of times just because things are biblical or Christian or, or God honoring doesn't make them a common practice, even within Christian culture and, and society, because to say yes to, like you said, these spiritual things that are not only impacting lives, you know, maybe around the country or around the world, they also could benefit you financially. They could grow, you know, your impact on a global scale. Uh, that is misprioritized if you are doing that at, ex at the expense of your children. However, I don't think that there's, you're going to receive a very much backlash from culture and society for everybody gives you a, you know, the out, I feel like an easy out. If, if you're prioritizing that ministry and saying yes to all those things at the expense of your family. And so I'm, I'm just so blessed by your commitment to that. And not only the, the sacrifice, you know, maybe financially or, you know, and, and growing, growing your name and fame, um, but then also not taking what I would consider to be the far easier route, even when it comes to societal acceptance. You know, if anything, you've probably disappointed numerous people that aren't your children you know, and if it was up to them, they would they would laud you and, and applaud you for saying yes to them instead of your children. But you know what God's placed on your heart and what's, you know, right according to him. So, yeah, so thank you for doing that and sharing that message. I appreciate that. So you mentioned Ellerslie a few times. Can you kind of tell us how that came to be? You know, what was the history of becoming a part of that? Or did you start it? What it, What are the origins of Ellerslie? Yeah, uh, so what is it now? Uh, 29 years ago, uh, I wrote a seven, I, I don't know why I have seven pages in my head, but it was a handwritten, almost like an essay or vision uh, statement of 
something that I called men of honor. And it was what I craved at the time. I was serious about Jesus. I was ready to, to do what it took to follow him. I wanted the, the gospel that Paul preached, not the gospel of the modern era. I wanted the real deal. I wanted to prepare for suffering, for martyrdom, to give up everything for Jesus. But I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to, I, I didn't know who to go to to be discipled in this sort of living. Yeah. And so I, I began to pray very specifically that God would bring a father of the faith to me that would take me under his wing and just sort of give me this deeper understanding, you know, cause I have a great father, but he, he wasn't, uh, he didn't understand this type of stuff that I'm describing. This was like a flourish in my soul uh, from the work of the Holy spirit. When I came to Christ and I was just like, okay, if I'm going to do this, I want to do it. I want to, I'm all in. And uh, well, I didn't grow up in a, in a version of Christianity that, took it that serious. I mean, we were serious, but I mean, hey, this is like a whole new level and no one knew what to do with Eric uh, at the time. And so I wrote this down. And when Leslie and I fell in love, we also fell in love around this. Hmm. This was something she held on to too, is that this is what we felt we needed, but Lord, do it through us became the prayer. Lord, disciple us, even if we don't have a father of the faith or mother of the faith, you could just take us under our wing and train us in this. I pray that you would teach us, you would disciple us, even if it's the hard way, so that we can impact a generation that's going to be asking for the same thing. And that's, in a sense, what Ellerslie is. Uh, it started 12 years ago now, the very first, but we had 17 years of prayer for it. And, uh, and so when we had our first banquet night for Ellerslie, it was truly extraordinary. Uh, I Hudson was five years old. I've been praying for 17 years for this thing, and suddenly it's happening. And I walked up on the stage, grabbed the mic. It was the very first things that were going to be said at the very first banquet night, and all I could do was cry. That's all I did for about, hmm. I don't know, a couple minutes. Uh, I just cried. And it was like, you know, people say your life flashed before your eyes. Well, this is like all of the years, the agonies, uh, all of that, that prayer flashed before my eyes. It was as if God was saying, you trusted me, now let's do this thing. And it was uh, the, the whole work of Ellerslie, which is, by the way, where the name comes from, is not a poor combination of Eric and Leslie. Uh, even <laughs> though I remember when someone brought that up, a friend of ours said, oh, that's so sweet. You're combining your names. And I was like... <clears throat> Oh no, that's horrible. If we were going to combine our names, hopefully it would sound better than that. But it's actually the birthplace of William Wallace. And when he married uh, Marion, uh, they built an estate called Ellerslie. Hmm. And so hmm. that's what Edward burned to the ground. Uh, but it was, the, so we call it, our unspoken subtitle uh, is uh, the birthplace of heroes. We want to build the sort of Christianity that is ready to lay down its life for the glory of Jesus. And so that's what we do. And it's been a very, very effective program over the years, fraught with the mischief of the devil, uh, wanting to undermine it and sabotage it. And uh, boy, we have battle stories and battle scars uh, from the last 12 years, but it's been good. And I'm a very, very happy man uh, doing what I do. Wow, praise the Lord. And I mean, thank you for doing that. I think I think I mentioned before we started recording that two of my sisters have been through uh, some of the 
programs. I know you offer a variety of programs there, so I don't, I don't want to butcher which one they went through. Um, and they were extremely blessed by, you know, what, what they learned in the experience there. Like as it has the vision, has the content, has the direction of Ellerslie morphed at all over those 12 years? Um, you, you obviously discipleship is at the core of it, but has, has the messaging and has even the format changed depending on what you see the practical needs being in, you know, the cultural seasons of life? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, the, I, I would say it's sort of like a, a pencil that has just gotten sharper and sharper, but it's had to alter, um, almost like going from cursive to, uh, print, our culture has dramatically changed in the past 12 years. And I don't think it takes any arm twisting to convince anyone of that. Uh, but there was a certain point, I'd say about four years ago, maybe even five, where we were wondering if on-site training was a thing of the past. It was a very interesting phenomenon because you had this growth of online training where everyone was just now expecting, well, I don't need to go anywhere. I can just get this online. And yet discipleship, this isn't the ideal way of imparting uh, the truth of the gospel life, because so much of it is caught and not taught. Uh, mm. So much of it is realized in and through interaction and discipleship. So, you know, a, a, uh, a person on person concept more than it is a uh, person on truth or person on fact uh, concept. And so it was interesting for us to walk through that. And we had various variations that we've come through. You know, we started with a 12-week program, then we had a, uh, a nine-week program. We tried a 20-week program, and now we're a five-week program. That's our that's our main flagship. And you could okay. say, hmm, that's odd. Why did you switch to a five-week? Well, it's very purposeful. Again, it's sharpening the pencil. When you have students on a campus, when they're here, when they first arrive, they're very, very uncomfortable. And I sort of like that because when you're uncomfortable, you're more dependent. Uh, you're more, you grip out, you reach out for something stable and they're learning to reach out and grab Christ. And so in those first five weeks, there's the dependency that is, that is beautiful in the, in the students at around the five week point, they've grown accustomed to the environment and they're familiar with it and they're familiar with each other. And so whenever we went longer than five weeks, you sort of begin to see a shift from the focus on Christ to almost a focus on the social. Hmm. And so we decided to puncture that balloon and uh, send them home at that exact time, but keep going. So we have 13 weeks follow-up that goes with that that's all online. And we actually have mentor calls and, and various things like that. So we're still going through material, but we have them in an uncomfortable environment again. They go back wow. to work, they go back to school, they go back to their family. They're like, oh, now I need to apply this. That's right. You need to apply this. And that has been a great model. Wow. And so wow. it's it's interesting, just as we've altered it, we've changed many times what we do, but every time our whole goal and our motive is to just sharpen what we do. We wanna make it effective. We don't want anyone to fall away. We know that people will fall away, but we don't want it to be because we were dumb. Uh, we don't want it to be because we gave a bad product. We want to give something with excellence that truly can impact and change a life and enable them to go the distance. Uh, of course, granted, the Holy Spirit is blessing the process because he's the one that really does all the work. So I don't know if that answers your question, but yes, yes. many, many changes over the years, many, many ad adaptations. The truth is the same. And the way we deliver it has just been modified and, uh, and altered to retrofit a new and odd generation that we are all experiencing. Yeah, I love that. Uh, and how is it 
when you first started this, were you and your wife, Leslie, like shoulder to shoulder in the trenches, putting in the, all the hours with this? And has that shifted over the years? Are you guys both hand in hand running this thing? What's that look like on a practical level in your marriage? Good question. Good question. Leslie has in the very first couple of years, uh, Leslie was more involved, but still not, uh, we, we never taxed her to the degree that she used to be taxed in the early years of our ministry before we had kids. Cause we didn't have kids for 10 years hmm. into our marriage. And, uh, but when we started Ellerslie, we did have kids. Uh, we had, uh, what was it? Hudson was five. So I'm not sure if we had four kids. I think we did four kids at the time. Well, that's not that easy. Four kids, five and under, uh, to spend a lot of time at Ellerslie. And so I would say I've always been surrounded by a very, very good team here. Uh, and Leslie is always sort of the one that helps organize Eric. She's the one that sort of helps, uh, figure out how I'm supposed to be using my time and what maximizes me. And she, she's always in the background, still let, you know, she has a magazine. She has, uh, she gets invited to speak more than I do. If you can believe that, uh, she's, she's her podcast has more listens. She's more, more in demand as a speaker and she's at home with our kids. What's the deal. I'm like working all hard. <laughs> There's something special about her voice and what she represents that I think is very, very significant for the hour in which we live. And so even though she's not as much in the leadership side of the practicals at Ellerslie, she's still a very, very much a part of what takes place just more in the behind the scenes mode. Okay. That's great. Now in regards to marriage, uh, I don't know if you could speak to kind of lessons you've learned. Cause you mentioned earlier on, you got, you and Leslie are both communicators. You were both writers. You were both, it sounds like kind of traveling the world sharing. If anything, you're both front stage people, maybe at least there for, for a season. Did that, you know, present challenges within the marriage dynamic, you know, going from both being front stage people to then having children to trying to decipher what your roles looked like in a Christian home? Yeah. I I mean, personality wise, it'd probably be good to know that Leslie and I are actually very different personalities, but with very similar giftings. And Hmm. so like, I am a people person. I'm the golden retriever. I uh, love everyone. And uh, Leslie loves everyone, but she doesn't really want to just be around everyone. <laughs> she, she's more introvert. She, she gets drained by being around people. And so she's very uh, watchful of how much time she sort of, she, she has a bigger margin uh, than I do. And uh, so she, you know, to not speak is not a big deal to her. That's, isn't that an interesting statement? She, she's fine yeah. if she's not uh, speaking. And so <clears throat> She doesn't have an itch to be up in front of people. I don't know if I do have an itch, but I thrive in communication mode. And yeah. it's a it's a very, you know, like I'm in my uh, stride uh, in that. So that's, that's maybe one important thing to note. But that when we were first married and we were first started speaking, it was hard, I think, more for her because my style is so dynamic. And she was thinking, man, I must be boring next to this guy. And I think one of the most important things for her to realize was to not try and be like me, Hmm. but to be exactly as she was designed to be. And like I said, she's more popular, (laughs) (laughs) which I can now get insecure the opposite direction. Go, maybe I'm too dynamic. Maybe I'm too loud. (laughs) But 
that's it's ridiculous either way. It's to cherish the fact that you are unique in your communication style and just allow God to play you like an instrument. You know, mm. a banjo and a drum are very different. And if they try and be like each other, it just doesn't translate well. Mm. And so to to really embrace it, that was a key thing that we had to work through. Uh, I think the biggest challenge with our marriage in and through this is just being on the front lines. I've oftentimes said that, uh, you know, everyone on earth gets trials and challenges. That's just what happens in a sin uh, sodden world. However, a Christian gets bonus challenges Mm. and a Christian leader gets bonus bonus uh, because we become, the enemy has limited resource. You know, if, if, if the devil took one third of the angelic host, that means the number of angelic hosts can be numbered and it's divisible. Mm. And that means God has double, which means the enemy has limited resource. And with his limited resource, he's not dumb, which he's going to place his limited resource on the places of greatest pain and threat. And so if we are actually effective in what we're doing, we are going to be creating pain and threat in hell. And so it should not surprise us when hell gives us some attention. And Leslie and I could write books and books about attention the enemy has given us, and we take it as a compliment. When we first started, we took it as a hazard. We took it as something maybe we should reconsider what we were doing. And we've learned our lesson over the years that, no, this is good, and it actually makes us stronger. We had two budgies. They're an Australian bird uh, and two budgies when we were first uh, married. Leslie got them for me for my birthday and a special thing. And they're in the kitchen sitting in their cage. And then whenever we'd vacuum, the budgies would peck at each other. So whenever they had this stress in their life, they'd peck at each other. And I still remember early in our marriage, we saw the budgies pecking at each other and we thought, aha, That is exactly what we do. The vacuum in our life starts, and the intention of the enemy is to get us to peck at each other. It worked. It's really embarrassing to admit that, but it would work. And we would find ourselves pecking at each other, even though we're not, neither one of us is creating a vacuum sound. It's something from outside that is coming against us. And we had to learn how to appropriate attack from outside and not allow it to turn us against each other, but to stand shoulder to shoulder. In it, And that, I think, has been one of the most important uh, principles of battle that we have had to learn because it's just strange. Uh, the very person you love more than anyone else you've committed to your covenant with, why would you nitpick them at a time of crisis uh, as if they are creating it? And so just learning the principle of the budgies uh, has been uh, critical for us. But in the very beginning, we were very susceptible to being played by the enemy's uh, little games, mm-hmm. uh, his wiles. And so we look back and we're a little chagrined and embarrassed and like, oh, we fell for that. Why do we? But he's the enemy's really good at what he does. And yes. we just need to become really good at marriage. And that's, that's what sometimes it takes time. I wish I could have inherited a little more knowledge of how to stand front lines in ministry. But when you don't come from families that were front lines in ministry, you don't always know that Hmm. until you are. So hopefully my kids (laughs) can skip some of the defeat moments (laughs) that I had uh, in that process. 
Oh, man, thanks for sharing that. And I love that you even used the term you had to get good at marriage because I think it's so easy to just think that marriage is what it is. Like, this is where we're at. But when you put, when you phrase it like that, then you realize you can grow in this. You can you can add tools to your tool belt. You can get mindsets. You can have a new perspective that actually strengthens your ability in marriage. It strengthens your marriage and you can become good, like what you said at marriage. Uh, we're taking a lot of time here, Eric, and I want to respect your time. But if you don't mind, can we do a couple rapid fire questions here to kind of close things out? Okay, fantastic. These are like going to be the most important questions of probably the whole episode. No, I'm joking. They're a little bit more lighthearted. Uh, do you read fiction? If if so, do you have a favorite fiction book or, or author? Uh, well, I, I do. I don't read a lot, but I, I do read. Uh, I'm working on a piece of fiction right now with my son. So obviously I can't be against fiction. Uh, yes. But uh, yes, uh, there's a trilogy that was the best-selling book in Poland for 100 years and it was called With Fire and Sword. And the, the trilogy is called The Trilogy. Oh. But it's written by Henrik Sienkiewicz. Uh, and the first book in the series, I think I said it wrong, is With Fire and Sword. Okay. And the translation by W.S., I don't know how to pronounce his name, Kunisak, uh, in, into English, won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And it is a masterpiece wow. uh, of literature. But so if that's a, an answer for you, in other words, it's not a very modern... Oh, that's great. No, I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, I'm excited to check that out. And then, um, do you guys have a favorite family vacation spot? We have, yeah, we've had quite a few different ones, a favorite one. Uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, we had, we had a time we've gone to Florida, uh, multiple times where there's an Island it's called North Captiva Island. And I think if our kids voted, they might vote for that. Uh, It was a very special place. You can't drive a car on it. Uh, It's like a wildlife haven, bird watching paradise, dolphin watching paradise, shells all over the beaches. You know, it's, it was a very, very special time. So that I'll just put that one. We also like brands. Oh, nice. That's fun. Yeah. Good. Okay. And then the last one, do you have a morning routine? And if so, is it different every morning and, or is it pretty similar? And is it important to your, to your flow and function of life? Oh yeah. My morning routine is, uh, the basis of success. In fact, I think my Sunday sermon this week is, uh, basically going to be about my foundation hour, uh, or my hour of foundation. I don't know what I call it. Foundation hour is what I call it. And how I wake up, the, even the first moments, the very first thoughts I have are very purposeful. How I move my feet when I am waking up is very aggressive, very uh, spry. I don't want to be defeated by tiredness. I want to rule it. And uh, how I rise up thinking about Christ, cherishing Christ, preaching to my soul, the gospel, and then how I use my very beginning hour of my day, I look at it as that set apart time where I'm laying a foundation, I'm establishing my thinking. And I want to make sure I'm not ruled by the culture, by the world's thinking, by the world's events, uh, by trials in my life, but I'm ruled by Christ's truth and Christ's agenda in my life. And so it's a very, very purposeful thing in how I handle everything from drinking uh, water uh, to drink to, uh, I should say, drinking in the scriptures, but maybe I should say feasting on the scriptures. Uh, And so I don't know if that answers your question, but yes, my morning routine is... uh, 
Well, that's not, look out, man. I, I don't, I, it looks like you're going to conquer anything you put your mind to with that type of morning routine and that type of, I guess, attention to detail. Um, I, we could probably do a whole podcast episode, it sounds like, on your morning routine. And you mentioned you're going to be preaching a sermon on it. it. Are your sermons archived anywhere for people to listen to so that we can hear more about your morning routine and how to crush a day like this? Uh, so, yes, yeah, so Ellerslie.com. Uh, in, there's a button that says sermons. Okay. So uh, that one is going to be called uh, the Tactics for the Brave Soul. Love it. Uh, and I'm starting a series called uh, the, uh, the Making of Brave. What is it called? Making Brave? Ah, boy, I can't remember what it's, it's called. Okay. You've got, got some time. time. Yeah, you've got some time to polish that one up. So, yeah, I'm not going to put you on the spot. Um well, thank you so much, Eric. Can you just let us know where we can find you? Also, I'm curious, you know, what's like for the average person, you know, you've got so many resources. Where's like the one home we can kind of find something? Because I think there's there's things that are so helpful for marriages, for parenting, for young adults, you know, for um, it seems like pretty much every walk and every stage of life. Uh, but is there like a home that is, is that Ellerslie.com or is that kind of really recommended? Or what, where would you send people? Yeah, Ellerslie.com is going to probably be a good hub. Uh, you know, there's EricLudy.com, which deals with a lot of my young manhood uh, stuff. Uh, then SetApartGirl.com, which is Leslie's woman okay. side. But Ellerslie is probably the best hub. It has all my sermons. It has all of our podcasts, you know, our Daily Thunder podcast. Uh, and so there's a lot of rich stuff there. And I, I'm guessing, I don't search through my own archives online. I have my own computer that I go through when I'm bringing up my old uh, stuff and using it. So I'm not sure what it's like for someone from the outside, but I'm guessing it's accessible. That's been the goal for years is to make these things accessible. Great. And so that's probably where you can find books. Some of your, uh, you've got some online offerings, I believe, right? Some online products as well as your in-person products. And that's all going to be there. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. Like we have a, most of our stuff is free too. Like uh, we have, I have a 93 part series on world war two called spiritual lessons from world war two. Wow. I would highly encourage anyone that is fascinated with it. I gave it during the year of COVID like 2020 when it first came uh, about. And uh, I have another one called spiritual lessons from Alfred the great. Both of those were given as a reflection, a parallel with the times in which we are in hmm. to say, understand the times we're in by understanding history and applying the spiritual truth to it. Extremely encouraging too, as opposed to being the down in the dumps, gloom and doom type of perspective. And I just finished one called spiritual lessons from Abe Lincoln's America. And so they're all sort of dealing with that, the parallels uh, and understanding spiritually how we function, how we can function and thrive in an hour like this. Okay. I love that, man. So yeah. And again, I, I could go on and on, but I've been so blessed with your, so much of your recent content regarding the times I mentioned before we started recording, Katie and I don't speak a lot about current events, um, just for a variety of reasons, but I'm so grateful for your take on it. So I, I encourage our listeners to listen to Eric's, you know, his, his podcast, the, He's in like you like you said you're in a bit of a thunderstorm right now so you're not daily it's not daily thunder um, there's a little bit of break in the storm yeah it starts this you know this next week I don't know when this this airs but yeah. when uh, when we are uh, we have a couple weeks every now and then like currently right this second we had one release this week next week we'll probably have four or five okay, okay. awesome wow we're back 
into normal mode starting this next week. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think you're sharing a lot of real-time stuff that's so helpful to any Christian that lives in America, probably lives anywhere in the world. So yeah, I encourage any of our listeners to go there. I know I'm consuming that. It's a huge blessing to me. Eric, thank you so much for being generous with your time and blessing us with so much of your insight and just encouragement. Really, we, we pray for you guys, and you guys are such a blessing to my wife, Katie, and I in our marriage and, and so many people that I know. So thank you so much for what you do. Thanks so much, Elijah. Yeah. Yep. All right. Hopefully we talk later. Bye-bye.